0: Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. We're joined today by Owen Wiseman, who's medical advisor who's based in Canada. I'm going to leave it to Owen to to tell, it, tell us about what he does, but Owen, thanks so much for joining us today. appreciate it.
1: Oh, I mean, first off, it's such a sincere pleasure to be here with you and your listeners. And I mean, the Journal of Biophilic Design is, it's definitely something that I've followed for quite some time um, and to kind of see how your journey has gone and grown has really been inspiring I find for myself even in my own journey and recently just listening to your conversation with uh, Dr Sally Augustine as well was really quite powerful so I'm very very privileged and honored to to be here today
0: oh that's lovely thanks so much for saying that um, well can you tell us a little bit about yourself then and, and what you do
1: yeah, so um, currently I'm a, I'm a naturopathic medical graduate who just recently um, graduated last year. So it's been lovely because I get to work in a beautiful clinic right now under the license of another um, ND. And I'll talk a little bit about what that is later, just, just so your listeners understand. Um, and it's been a really quite a joy to kind of integrate my own nature-based solutions and nature-based principles into my own office space so that's been something and I'm also a consultant and a medical advisor to a phyto-pharmaceutical company the Canada base of that that's headquartered in Switzerland so it's a really it's an interesting role because you do get to really apply um, kind of those plant-based nature-based principles and you get to see the power of, of these clinically proven herbs and how they can be used in helping people heal. So in that role, it's been really, really interesting to actually dive a little deeper into the medical side of the herbs above and beyond our curriculum at school. And it's just such a, an interesting and powerful position to be in to learn
0: yeah, so it was really great. Um, I mean, what, obviously, you obviously you can tell you love nature and the natural world. I mean, what got you into it? Where, where did it kickstart?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds really kind of cheesy, but it does go all the way back to childhood. So growing up, um, we were quite lucky. We've had a family cottage in the family for it'll be 60 years this year. And so it was always kind of a, a gathering place for us and our extended family. And I'm the youngest of 13 cousins on, on one side. And so for us, I mean, every weekend kind of growing up during the summer, well, yeah, of course you were, you were going out to the lake and you got to really experience this and enjoy it. And for me, I didn't notice it so much growing up because we were there so often, but as you tend to get busier and you get summer jobs while you're in your, your teen years, I noticed the absence more and that that's, Kind of a big part about preventative health almost that I'll, I'll kind of touch on later but you really do see it's not so much that you notice when you're taking it you notice when you don't and so as i kind of had three weeks in between a visit to the cottage or up to six weeks between a visit out to the lake i really noticed how much more kind of irritable i almost was being confined in the city and feeling like i was trapped in the city and so that was kind of when it first started to think there's something, there's something here. There's something about being in nature and and kind of where one of my projects has come from, science and nature is really talking about, you know, we instinctively know we feel better in nature and in the outdoors, but what's the science behind it all? So I think that really kind of started to catapult my interest. And then it just continued to snowball from there. So in my undergrad, I was, I was really privilege to get to work with um, Dr. John Zelensky, who's an environmental psychologist, and Dr. Mark Berman, who runs the Environmental Neuroscience Lab out of the University of Chicago. He publishes, both of them publish a ton of research on environmental psychology and how nature benefits the brain. So during my undergrad thesis, I had the privilege of working with these two gentlemen and just learned so much. And, And it was really just quite incredible. And, and to be able to apply those principles that I knew I felt in my childhood and be able to apply those now in a wider setting and analyze data on it. So I think it's it's always been there. I just, I never knew how to put the language around it. And during my time um, in naturopathic medicine, I moved to Toronto and it was a much bigger city than than Ottawa. And I did notice myself just really missing the ability to head to the lake or head outside to go for a walk because Ottawa is a very diverse, everyone's pretty much, everyone is very outdoorsy here. You know, love going for hikes in, in the nearby Hills and the mountains and things like that. And then you go to Toronto where it's traffic city and it's very, very busy and, and people are quite disconnected. I found in my personal opinion from nature and that was something I'm sure as you've done in your readings, in your podcast, Richard Louvre, who um, dis- defined and described nature deficit disorder, and, and I would bet money on it that individuals in larger cities definitely feel that sense of nature deficit disorder being so um, distanced and disconnected from, from nearby nature
0: yeah it's so important to have that connection even if it's a plant on your desk or whatever it's that just it's inherent in us isn't it it's this sort of primitive um understanding uh, um that we have really um obviously you you do mention naturopathy uh and what you use in your practice can you i mean obviously people a lot of people probably understand and know what it is but if people have forgotten can you explain what naturopathy is
1: yeah absolutely and i think it's good because there is there's a lot of misconception and, and misinformation that does Feed out there, so kind of getting it from primary sources is always the best, the best area. So here in Canada and across North America and a lot of different regions, um, you have naturopaths who you can call yourself that if you've taken a weekend course in an unregulated province or state. So this is where the real danger comes from, and I'll touch upon that in a second. And then you have naturopathic doctors. So naturopathic doctors have completed an undergraduate, and I'd say ninety. Nine percent of my colleagues all did an honors bachelor of science or environmental science, things like that, that are very science based. Um, so it, it's a minimum of eight years of schooling to be a naturopathic doctor in a regulated province or a regulated state. Um, and that's I mean, you have a clinical year. So our final year of schooling is upwards of twelve hundred clinical hours spent seeing patients under one of the licensed nds in the clinics on campus Um, and you're also encouraged to do a number of preceptor hours where you actually go out into the field and you precept under other healthcare professionals so i was lucky enough to work with a lot of my colleagues um i was a clinical researcher at the children's hospital here in ottawa so i worked with a few of them during my my time in school so it's it's that's kind of where the misconception comes from, because some of the the less um, positive news stories that you'll read when you actually dive into them, they end up just being a naturopath who took kind of this weekend course. So because the general public isn't isn't traditionally aware of that, there's really a kind of an information campaign to help highlight the difference between just run of the mill weekend course individual and then, oh, eight years of school. <laughs> So, yeah, it's really, I mean, in terms of the principles, we kind of focus on treating the whole person because in the profession and the reason that I, I switched from kind of conventional medicine route to naturopathic medicine is because I wanted the privilege of time. And so I have a lot of friends and amazing colleagues who are medical doctors. They're phenomenal, caring, empathetic, compassionate people, but they are tied by a system. So in Canada, we have a a public health care system. And so their hands are kind of tied to that one complaint seven minute visit model. So, you know, if if someone were to come in with depression, let's say, so if they come in with depression, then they'll probably be prescribed an antidepressant, then that does snowball into other effects that each respectively then need their own medication. So during my time, at our local children's hospital, you would see kids on, you know, four or five medications. And these kids are about seven years old. And the trouble is when you actually would kind of look into it, all of these are meant to seemingly help them cope with the side effects of the other medications. So you just kind of sit there thinking, at what point do we go, why am I just band-aiding symptom after symptom when I should be looking at really treating the root cause, what's causing this in the first place. So again, kind of NDs as primary care providers in those regulated provinces in those regulated states really have the privilege of time, which is which is why the profession works so well as part of the overall care team. And that's something I really try to communicate to anyone we're seeing in clinic is it's not either or it's how can we all work as a team? And that's really when you see a lot of the success coming through kind of in the research and in the literature is, is when you look at hospital care and healthcare care when they have a, a physician's assistant when they have a registered nurse when they have a physiotherapist it's that that team approach that really helps them them heal and there's different modalities or tools that's a really fun part about the the profession is I find you kind of have this tool belt so we use different modalities like herbal medicine or, or clinical nutrition which have so many incredible uh, incredible benefits and I find that, What's really interesting is when you look at some of the drugs and pharmaceuticals that we have today, they've actually been synthesized from herbs that we might use and herbalists might use as well. So, you know, when you consider aspirin, it's made from white willow bark. So for many coming kind of through our doors, it does beg the question, if my pain is mild enough, can I find relief in a cup of tea? And you're based out of the UK. So that's just a question you're asking all the time.
0: true <laughs> yeah
1: oh it's it's a it's a very rewarding career choice so far and i don't have any regrets
0: yeah no it's, it's great I, I, actually what you say you know a lot of um the conventional medicine if you want um you know is but is synthesized on you know things that are based on, yeah herbs you know grass mm. natural you know plants and things i mean we can do so much without poisoning ourselves or becoming dependent on these sort of, you know, these mm. these synthesized um, con- concoctions. Um, obviously, they have their place. I'm not saying that, you know, they're, they're not absolutely. But, um, but finding something a root cause. If there's another option that you could try, then there's definitely, mm-hmm. and and you, as you say, you know. There's, you know, there's so much positivity that comes out of it, and so many positive um, results mm-hmm. come out of it. Um, obviously, you we talk, we're talking about um, botanical medicine. Um, everybody, you know, at the moment, it's sort of it's freezing over here. We've had snow, and um, it's, obviously, I'm in the UK, and it's kind of okay-ish now. It's kind of it's becoming spring. But obviously, with all the lockdown and everybody's like going bana- bana- bananas, um, we're all trying to sort of boost up our immune system. Yes, I have my little yogi tea here as well nice. <laughs> with my immune buster. I'll join you
1: there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, but I mean, is there something that you can um, maybe recommend, um, you know, to sort of to, to, to sort of minimize any flu or you know, or even sort of COVID type symptoms at all? I mean, I don't know. Is there anything?
1: Yeah, it's that's kind of the big sweeping question taking the globe by storm right now, and and even in my role as a medical advisor outside the clinic, I I do certain trainings, and I often get asked by by individuals reaching out to touch on how do we defend against COVID nineteen, and, and the truth of the matter is, it's it's really no different than how we support our immune function against all pathogens and everything, and and I found it almost sad <laughs> to watch how there was this narrative in 2020 especially of of treating proper hand hygiene and keeping your distance from individuals who are sick like it was this novel new thing that we had just discovered in, in 2020 it was it's kind of terrifying <laughs> these aren't new guidelines so for me I mean when I, when I do get asked about specific ways to kind of defend against novel viruses no different from how we support Our body against all pathogens so for me the question really goes back to kind of the foundations of health so you want to ensure you're getting enough sleep to allow your body time to recuperate because when you're awake and you're stimulated your body doesn't really have that time to fully shut off so when you shut off at night then it can clean things up and you can see the brain fluid gets circulated a little bit better and more efficient and blood flow even to remove kind of waste byproducts from different cellular processes so that's kind of one of the big foundations of health and the other is just eating a diet that's really rich in a variety of nutrients and minerals because the body needs these building blocks to actually be able to process and function so i I really just as diverse as your diet can be and find ways to incorporate kind of any form of physical activity and of course get into nature if you can do green exercise as well so those it always goes back to that support support your body it's it's hard to kind of make these recommendations for more specific compounds right because you you don't know the individual i mean a lot of the stuff that we see out there including kind of um even marigold or or chamomile things like this members of the daisy family the asteraceae family so it's one of the in canada at least the largest flowering species that we have But you never know if someone has an allergy to it, in which case they're allergic to a lot of different medicinal herbs that are out there. So you really just you want to be careful kind of, you know, picking willy nilly off the shelf, which is why kind of primary care providers like myself are are really here to help guide you and help support you. And, you know, I always say you can't out supplement or a crappy diet or a crappy lifestyle. It's got to be a a blend of of an approach. Mm -hmm
0: yeah it's so true isn't it always always a consultant expert before you do anything it's true mm-hmm. I so. you might realize you don't you know you might somebody might tell you you know kind of your mate say well i'm having this and you think oh it's great but actually if you speak to an expert you know mm-hmm. a proper, um, like or somebody like yourself who's trained in it who knows and understands and can hear your your you know your um your medical history and you know you, you also i suppose there's all sort of physical things as well you know you kind of mm-hmm. identify and stuff you can actually tailor it properly to them mm-hmm. which you would do- and that's I
1: think you're seeing a shift towards that more kind of individualized and personalized medicine. And, and one thing that we do tend to forget is kind of part of the triangle of evidence-based medicine. One of the cornerstones is patient choice. So at the end of the day, my job is, is not to tell the person what to do. It's to act as kind of a guide on their journey. I, I always consider it such a privilege to be part of an individual's health journey that they chose to kind of invest their time with me and, So I get to play a small, small role on that. I provide options. They look at what's best for them. And I mean, it's easy for me to suggest a thousand different things, but you don't know how they're going to interact with whatever else they're taking until you run a check through a a system that we have. And price too. It's easy for me to go, yeah, it's going to be $300 a month for all the stuff that we expect you to take. That's a lot of money for a lot of people. So you really want to look at it as personalized and and individualized.
0: That's really good. Um, I mean, obviously clinical nutrition is, an, is a sort of buzzword that we hear. It's kind of, it was the thing that was quite big over here a couple of years ago. I don't know where it's quite gone at the moment, but um, I think I'm sure it'll rear its head again. Um, but uh, can you give us sort of a couple of tips maybe, you know, well, obviously there's something we do have control over is our diets, to be fair. Uh, we can't get out and we can't do a load of other things <laughs> with the whole lockdown. This is all globally. Um, although apparently it's okay in, in Lumbini in, in Nepal. So um, <laughs> mm, They're <laughs> but, getting out. <laughs> they're getting up um so um yeah i mean just maybe to sort of take care of our guts or our lung health Mm. or our heart you know i mean obviously if we can't really exercise or whatever or we do as much as we can but i mean maybe sort of in terms of clinical nutrition what would you advise
1: yeah so i mean i won't go into the politics of globalization but i mean the big thing for me is kind of we consider how exotic some of the foods that we eat regularly is and it was some time ago that i was reading about the expense of a pineapple and that was a fruit that was so expensive in the middle ages that only kind of the jeff bezos or the elon musks of the world could afford them Um, You know, one of the benefits now is that we have access to so many different nutritious, diverse foods that we've really been able to, to diversify our diets and experience a whole new world of flavor and taste. And, and again, whether that diversification is um, good or bad for us is a minefield of opinions, but I mean, it's a lot better than paying $8,000 to have a single pineapple shipped to you, which is what, what it was back in the day. So absolutely just bonkers. <laughs> so I mean clinical nutrition basically it looks at the diet from the lens of of using of using medicine, of using food as a tool. And you know, sure, we could absolutely just eat what we like and call it a day, but we've we've really become quite strategic in the way that we we recommend foods to those kind of walking through the doors of the clinic. And it's all about using nutrition efficiently and, and effectively and and i love my grandparents but they grew up in a time without a lot of the recent knowledge we've gained of food and some of the, the cooking style so you know cooking meat a roast might be in the oven for two hours too long and then you could sole your shoe with it so it's uh we've, we've definitely come a long way away from that and i mean my biggest consideration when it comes to clinical nutrition and the power of clinical nutrition is is that poor diet now actually outranks smoking as the leading cause of death globally according to the the latest research And it was a recent systematic review published in The Lancet, so close to home, um, that suggests that medical students in countries around the world actually haven't been getting the education they need to counsel patients on healthy eating. And it was another publication out of the Journal of the American Medical Association that notes that an MD only gets about 19 hours over 4 years of training in nutrition and that's mostly on on vitamin deficiencies and the biochemistry as it may interact with certain pharmaceuticals that will be prescribed. And so when you look at ND curriculum we receive about 150 hours of training. So it kind of goes back to that that healthcare team idea. So it's it's never got to be an either or option. My knowledge of pharmaceuticals of surgical procedures they far MDs exceed me and i i acknowledge that don't trust me to build a bridge i'm not a structural engineer so i wouldn't presume to speak on on the knowledge of another professional but you can really see how we can kind of blend so well together and, and these gaps show how well we can optimize the health of shared patients as well and, and i love kind of that that team approach but like you said in terms of tips as well i mean gut health is something a lot of the western world struggles with and and just general advice outside of specific conditions is to really focus on that diversity, kind of like we said, to really make sure you get the full spectrum of nutrients. Because if you're eating a very routine structured diet, um, you might be missing some things. So that's why there are programs that you can run someone's diet through and it'll kind of spit out, hey, based off of what you're eating right now, this is what you're deficient in. This is where where some areas that we can kind of improve. And, and so fiber is something that I think a lot of us could do with a little bit more of in the Western world, especially. And, and I mean, based off of your culture and whatever way that you're eating, but fiber is a great one because I mean, it, it's good. It's prebiotic. It helps kind of feed the healthy gut species, um, helps us regulate our blood sugar. It keeps us feeling full longer and, and regulate our bowel movements. I mean, because most of us, maybe we're waking up, we're grabbing that cup of coffee to start the morning off. Um, you know, I'll stick to my tea. And after that, it's kind of, oh, you know, I need to run to the washroom. So really having that fiber kind of helps regulate everything. I think second, because you ask for a couple, so second, I would probably say, consider foods that are rich in complex carbs versus simple carbs. So simple carbs are really, really short. So they're broken down super quick and they kind of give us, this short burst of energy but complex carbs actually take a while to kind of break down and they they help provide kind of that lasting energy which leads into a snowball of benefits right because if you feel full longer if you feel more energized longer you might not feel the need to snack as much either because your body has these stores of energy to slowly draw on and and the difference between them in terms of actual foods probably won't surprise any of your listeners, right? White bread and pasta tend to fall into the simple carbs. Fruits and veggies tend to fall into complex carbs. So really just making sure there's a healthy, happy plate. You know, if you can go for half of the plate being veggies, fantastic. And I think last is not so much a recommendation in terms of a specific food group, but I would probably say just focus on creating a healthy relationship with food because I mean, when when you hear about people struggling with body image issues or things like that, it's because what you see in the media, and that's why it's really nice to see these body positivity campaigns coming out, because what you see in the media is a lot of the time really unrealistic for a lot of people. And to be able to access certain levels of of food and flavors, it really is um, a privilege to be able to, to afford certain foods and to buy organic So. I don't I tell people not to get so much caught up in a diet because it shouldn't be about a diet. It should be a lifestyle. And there's often now with the internet access to incredible recipes. And like we talked about the foods earlier. So there's ways to really curate your meals to your tastes. And you know, I myself have tried those virtual cooking classes where you you pick up the ingredients and a chef helps walk you through the recipe. And it just helped evolve my own relationship with food, hearing again from an expert on screen talking about pairing certain flavors or how to how to combine it in a way that really highlights the flavor of one food versus another and how if you totally change the cooking method, you switch that up. So it's practicing a lot of these mindful eating techniques to really engage with your food. And, and that makes a huge difference in my mealtime without having to make concessions on what I eat because... You know, if I if I have someone in the office and I see them, and if I were to tell them, well, you need to cut out bread, I probably won't see them again because they love their bread and they don't want to give it up. So we're not gonna say get rid of your bread, but how can we modify it? So instead of white bread, you know, do we go to a sprouted grain or or kind of the Ezekiel bread as well, It's just so fiber rich and it has so many different nutrients in it. So I love, 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 love using clinical nutrition as a tool and working within the scope of what people can afford and the time that they have if you have a family the idea of cooking this beautiful full meal that maybe you put it down on the table and two of your kids go i'm not eating that (laughs) you know it's different from if you live alone or if you live just with your partner
0: yeah exactly i think um if anybody's listening to this and they're probably thinking you know obviously this is the general life design they're probably thinking what the heck is this all about because it's like you know but I think for me it's biophilia the original kind of like obviously yeah Wilson was talking about the love of life and the love of living things and actually and this is all this is all part and parcel of the whole mm-hmm. bringing in nature and natural elements into your life to make your life better to make us go back to how we were originally and like to be in that healthy happy place in in our being in our you know in our inherent being um, just as a thing I can't have biscuits in the house because I will eat them all <laughs> so I have to not have them in the house but I've what I've done is with the holes because I, you know you can see the plants behind me and stuff but um, I have I have you know fruits and mm-hmm. things from nature on the plates it's sort of an, and sort of I my, have my, my my even when I open my fridge it's full of vegetables and it's mm-hmm. and, and it's just so uplifting it's kind of mental really it's just so wonderful and it's it's yeah it's just, um, it's just it's a lovely um it's sort of feeling um mm-hmm. to feel you know it's, it's like yeah it's you know okay if I can't get outside I might have a view I might have this whatever but actually my fridge is my view of nature so yeah absolutely um, yeah you know so I can see the benefit completely um so um, I was going to say you've got a great Instagram feed and that's kind of how we connected um, and I've watched your journey as well sort of grow. Could you um, tell us your Instagram feed name? Please? Yeah,
1: so I actually, I started a project some time ago while I was in my clinical year and, and it kind of came out of that, that biophilia design as well because I was thinking, you know, with, with what I'd seen at the children's hospital and the different pharmaceuticals and how do we use those and, and band-aiding different symptoms. Herbal medicine can be a lot more gentle, but you do have some of these really toxic herbs. I mean, even when you look at kind of digitalis or lily of the valley or all these all these different ones. And so for me, I'm kind of thinking, well, these are good to use. I like using them. I like understanding the interactions, but there's gotta be something that doesn't have side effects. And, and even from a cost perspective. So I really started diving into the clinical benefits of, Nature And how could I, as a future clinician on my own and for my colleagues, how could I use that in my own practice? Because even when you consider exercise, it's easy to just say, yep, here's your go home and exercise. You need to exercise more. Great. I'm going to leave and I'm not going to think about that comment ever again (laughs) until I joke with my friends about how we've all been told to exercise more from our our primary care providers. But what you see in the research is that if you actually write the person a prescription and say, this is how much exercise I need you to do per day, per week, and these are the types of motions that I want you to focus on, it actually increases how many people are doing it. And I thought, well, that must work with nature as well. And so as I started to kind of diving into it a little bit deeper. I, I just started collecting data and then I thought, well, you know, people could really benefit from this. There's no cost to nature. And at the end of the day, it's, it's kind of that access route, which I'll, I'll touch upon a little bit later. So then I created this account called science and nature and that handle for that on Instagram is science and nature official. So every Monday, um, I've <laughs> Sometimes it gets away from me, but I've been pretty good for, for presenting it every single week. So every Monday, I just present one kind of e bite research e-byte, and it's a really good way to almost share people. So So a lot of my time in terms of the project is spent taking it from this really large, potentially 15-page study to something that... The general public and other individuals can just read and go, yeah, actually, that's a great way to apply it to my own um, practice. So that's the really exciting part is I've been able to really help curate a lot of kind of one or two sentence benefits in different sectors as well. And that's the exciting part about all of the biophilic designs that we see out there you know, you can apply it in a healthcare facility, you can apply it in a school. And you look at kind of the forest schools in the Scandinavian countries, especially, and it's miles ahead of of where we're at, I find in Canada and North America. So I'm, I'm really excited to be able to, to share that and connect with other like minded individuals, like yourself. So the project's been such a phenomenal outlet for me. And now I have this massive library and database where if someone does walk through the door, and let's say, I don't know, they're a small business owner and they want to make their employees a little bit more productive while they're at work, although maybe now they're working from home, (laughs) then, you know, I have this library of, hey, here's 10 benefits that you could now implement in your own small business and you'll see it pay off in dividends.
0: Exactly. I mean, can you um, give us maybe two or three of them? Um, I mean, one of them is number 36. So people that go onto your um, Instagram, they can find this. As you say, the surgical patients exposed to greater sunlight required 22 percent fewer opioid medications, resulting in drug cost savings of 21 percent. I don't know, maybe is it other kind of things that you'd like to highlight that you you found that kind of maybe right, you know,
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's how much you want me to nerd out. (laughs) I mean, the, the, the healthcare one for me, healthcare is so powerful. I mean, when you look at kind of East Asia or or the Asian countries, they've integrated a lot more of this biophilic design principles into some of their hospitals and the data coming out of these hospitals in terms of recovery rates, even um, when you kind of look at daylighting, if you're exposed to natural light and I'm, I'm pretty lucky to work in an office with a, with a big window, but when you're exposed to natural light, it actually reduces how much pain you're feeling. And that's, so you have these two separate studies, one showing daylight can help and plants can help with a reduction in pain. And then this one that you mentioned, yeah, how it can reduce how many opioid medications. If I don't feel as much in pain, I don't need the high dose of opioid medications, which has the snowball benefit because we know Globally, we're experiencing an opioid crisis because we so freely hand them out when it comes to pain. And there's definitely benefits. I mean, if your body is riddled with cancer and you're in pain all the time, absolutely, we need to help you and alleviate that so you can think clearly and you're not foggy of mind. And so, I mean, the benefit to that is you're you're potentially reducing the chance that someone develops a tolerance or an addiction to that type of medication which damages their entire life and that of their family. So you're really helping kind of contain the ripple effect that is addiction in terms of, of opioid overprescription. And then the drug cost savings, I don't know a single hospital or country or ministry of health that would look at drug cost savings and go, Oh, we don't want that. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's very straightforward. So, the healthcare stuff is, is amazing. And they 1984. Um, one of the most famous kind of pioneers of biophilic research or nature based research um, is Ulrich. And he basically looked at um, patients who had received an appendectomy. So the remove Oh, no, sorry, it was a cholecystectomy. So the removal of their gallbladder. And when they were in a room with plants and, and views of nature, they recovered faster when you controlled for all other variables. So that, I mean, from a hospital point of view, I can discharge my patients faster. So I get my bed back faster so that someone else who's coming through, I can help them sooner. So I'm reducing wait times and there's just so many benefits there. But, you know, in terms of other stuff, it's kind of, I really love the education side. And so the the pro-social behavior side as well, and, and exposure to images of nature can actually influence individuals to be more generous and trusting of others. And that also follows along with other nature or um, other nature-based research that showed communities developed kind of this greater sense of neighborhood safety and how to reduce crime rate when green space was nearby. And I think for that, we do live in a very divisive time where it's kind of, you know, you're part of this party or you're part of that party or you're part of this ideological value system and and so it's it's quite divisive so when you see green space being this this beautiful solution to being able to bridge that gap and and if you're more trusting of your neighbors because we do live in a time now with technology and phones and computers and zoom where it's easier to access people who are across the world so i don't need to know my neighbors because I've got friends in the UK or I've got friends in Australia. So I don't really, why do I need to know my neighbors? Whereas back in you know, the time of my grandparents, especially everyone knew their neighbors because you created the sense of community. So I, I love that research that really looked at how do we bridge this, gra- this gap and create a more collegial area. and And even, I mean, health inequalities related to income are lower in neighborhoods that have a greater amount of green space but then i mean that opens the whole conversation about what a privilege it is to have green space nearby and, and whether you know socioeconomic status do we really invest in these big beautiful parks in a in an area that's a lower socioeconomic status so it really does bring to light kind of the privilege of what it is to have access to a park or a parkette nearby and. I mean, even that, that bleeds into kind of the final stat, I wouldn't mind sharing, that children who spend the least amount of time in nature from birth to age 10 have a 55% increased risk of developing psychiatric illness in adolescence and adulthood. And that's controlling for all other factors, that research. So it's this incredibly powerful tool that has benefits that just pay off decades and decades into the future and how much money is it to develop a really beautiful park nearby but obviously from a developer point of view that space that you could put up a condo building or something and so it's switching our mindset from just thinking about green space as a oh yeah it looks pretty to this has social benefits and it, it has the ability to save costs in the long run so I think you'll see that. I think it's slow, but the pandemic has really forced people because everything was closed to really redevelop their nature and rediscover nature nearby and their relationship with it and and help nurture that, which has been so, so, so exciting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I was going to say that, you know, that it's nice to see, I mean, even where I am. You know, I, I see people walk past where I am and I, I don't even know who they are. You know, the people coming from all over the place, they're walking because you've got, you know, some trees and greenery and things just here. And it's really lovely to see. Um, And you mentioned about how everything at the moment is very polarised, isn't it? You know, on sort of political and sort of social. And, you know, there's just there's two it's, people seem to be wanting to sit in one camp or another camp and have a go at each other and all this kind of stuff. But actually the level um, playing field, if you want, that we all share, is this planet and this earth and this, and nature and the world we live in and the the squirrels and the birds Mm. and the trees and, you know, and and I think if you embrace that and you use that more in your life and you go out and appreciate it, and if you have access to green space, and if, you know, councils and and, and urban planners provide that green space, as you say, it does encourage understanding and Mm. communication communication and connection because you're connecting in a different way you're connecting in a in a safe place you're collecting connecting in a place that isn't you know four wars and it's you know it's a as, as you know it's a certain political you know um, resonance or something it's completely open to everybody whatever race color creed um, you know um, financial background mm. whatever you are um, we all I can can appreciate a squirrel we can all appreciate yeah. And flowers and the, the the sun on our face and um you know wherever you are in the world you know you just got to look up and there's always a you know you know there's always there's always nature that will will just uplift us or or, or connect mm-hmm. us um i suppose sort of one thing that i really wanted to ask you is kind of the last sort of question really um if you could as this kind of is a question i ask everybody um and i would just be i'm really intrigued to to hear what you would say um but if you could brush the world with like this sort of like magic brush of biophilia what would the world look like how would people be
1: oh <laughs> that kind of question really truly lets my imagination get away with me
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> I think a world of biophilia in part kind of emulates the goals of, of Singapore their initiative to become kind of the greenest city on earth so they once were a city that that really grappled with overcrowding which meant pollution was kind of the norm polluted water polluted air and so it was in 1963 that their prime minister i'm gonna butcher the name i apologize (laughs) but lee kun hua introduced his vision of kind of a, a garden in the city and when you fast forward to today Singapore is is well on its way so by 2030 I believe they have the goal of ensuring that at least 85 percent of their residents live within about 10 to 15 minutes walking of a park and they have this big plan to green public infrastructure by lining these roadways with with trees and plants and really kind of enrich that biodiversity throughout the city and they even have kind of grants and programs. One of them is Skyrise Greenery, which actually subsidizes the cost of installing the vertical greenery on existing infrastructure. So I think my my big vision is really smashing that concrete jungle that we've created to really bridge the gap and kind of join hands once more with the natural world. And and that reverie, that, that vision, applying it to every city on earth would really I think, be the biggest dream come true.
0: Thank you for listening to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast.